0: Do yourself a favor, stop in today in-store inside the Epps Bridge Shopping Center or online at alumnihall.com. They've got anything and everything that you could want with a Georgia G on it, guys. Any logo you want, any style you want, any brands you want, they've got it. Polos, t-shirts, hats, stuff for your house, stuff for your car, whatever you are in the market for, Alumni Hall's got you covered, guys, because Alumni Hall is where the Bulldogs shop. All right, guys, I am your host, Tyler, and I know I said that we were done talking recruiting this summer. I know I promised you guys that we were, but I lied. And I'm sorry, guys. I really am. But we just wrapped up an epic recruiting run where we landed five commitments in nine days. Five commitments in nine days, guys. So promises aside, it's kind of hard to not talk about that, to just go about our business and act like that did not just happen because it did so we will get back to previewing the coming season on our next episode this is just a one episode recruiting interlude but today we've got some recruiting to talk about And then at the end of the episode, I'm also going to throw in one more edition of the biggest what-ifs in Georgia football history. I've gone through quite a few of them that have my list, but my list is very long, so I still have a number of the biggest what-ifs in Georgia history left to run through, and we will get to that at the end of the show today. But first, man, what a run it has been on the recruiting front. Five commitments in nine days, all five of them four stars, all five of them inside the top 261 recruits in the country, four of the five inside the top 175, and one of them, and one of them, defensive lineman Joseph Jonah Ajani from Texas, I think is going to be a five-star prospect before it's all said and done. He's close right now. He's top 40 nationally, and he is just scratching the surface of how good he's going to be. We'll dive more into his game later on. But man, if I had to bet on it, I'd put my money on him being a five-star before it's all said and done. In fact, if he's not by the time this cycle is over, then I might have to fight somebody. I mean, it might come down to that, guys. I'm I'm generally speaking a lover, not a fighter. But if Joseph Jonah Ajanye is not moved up to a five-star by the time this cycle is over, I will lose all faith in mankind. Like, seriously, call Dana White. Set up a cage match between me and, like, anyone involved in ranking these guys because there's no way that dude is not a five-star based on the the stated criteria that they use to rank guys as five stars. So I'm fairly certain he's going to have a big senior year. Guy's only been playing football since his freshman year of high school. He's gotten better and better with each passing year. You got to imagine this will be the best year yet. And if he's already ranked number 37 nationally in the 247 composite, there's a very strong chance that he will continue to move up those rankings and be a five-star before it's all said and done. Again, I think he's a five-star right now, but they don't ask me these things. They do whatever they want to do, which ultimately doesn't matter. But, but I mean, when you see a guy on tape and you're like, oh my God, this dude is a freaking monster. In some way, somehow he's not a five-star. It kind of just offends your football sensibilities. So that's kind of where I am with that. I mean, again, it doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things. Who cares if he's number 37 and a four-star or number 29 and a five-star? Like, what does that even mean? It's just offensive to my to my football sensibilities. But we'll talk more about him a little bit later on in the show. But anyway, a huge nine-day stretch. I mean, we could even call it a six-commitment in 14-day stretch if you want to throw in Nnamdi Boko committed back on June 25th. Big defensive lineman. He's going to play that zero-tech nose guard position for us, that Jordan Davis man so well, and the Nas Stackhouse man fantastically for us last year. So if you throw him in there, it's actually six commitments in 14 days. And I know that some of y'all were getting worried there, man. I know that you were. You watched us lose a few high-profile battles. You watched Florida make a run into the top five. And, of course, they're out there chirping on social media. And some of you start questioning, like, what's going on, man? Which that's become normal. That's become an annual rite of passage for Georgia fans this time of year. Every single summer for the past three or four years, the frantic questions about our recruiting fortunes come pouring in. People wondering if Kirby Smart's lost his touch. Are we falling behind? Why aren't we getting this guy? Why aren't we getting that guy? What's going on? And you would think that since we've had the number one class for a couple of months now, that those questions would have dried up this summer and it wouldn't have been a thing. But you would also have thought wrong. We still get a number of those questions, which I get it, guys. Like, we're all invested. We all care. So when we have when there's a guy that we really want, that we think can help us win another national title, and he not only spurns us, but goes to a rival school, I, I understand how that can lead to some frustration and some concern. Absolutely. I will never fault any of you out there for caring. In fact, I think we should all care more about things that are important to us. But anyway, we talked about this concept a couple of weeks ago, one of our mailbag episodes, one of those recruiting mailbags. I was asked about our recruiting momentum and how we had kind of stalled and when can we expect to get some of that momentum back or are we going to fall behind here? What's going on with Florida jumping up? Like, When is it going to be our turn again? And I told you guys on that episode to not worry because July was going to be a massive month for Georgia recruiting. And this, my friends, is exactly what I was talking about. And let me just go ahead and throw this out there while we're on the topic. It's only July 9th, guys. You might be thinking, man, how could there possibly be more? Trust me, there is more to come. In fact, I would dare to say the biggest splash or should I say biggest splashes have yet to be made this month. Just put that in your back pocket. But anyway, let's talk about these commitments. If you listen to this podcast, I know you are dialed in. This podcast is not for the faint to fart. This is not for casual fans. This is for you guys, the most diehard Georgia fans out there. That's who we produce this podcast for. That is our target audience. It is you guys. So I know that you already know that all four, so we got five commitments in the past nine days. Four of them are offensive line commitments. And I know that you know that. And I also know that you know that these are massive dudes along the offensive line. Let me just run through these numbers again for you guys. Michael Winnie, 6'7", 290. He's probably the smallest, not probably, he is the lightest of the group. Daniel Calhoun, 6'6", six, six 355. Nair Daniel, 6'8", 340. Marquise Easley, 6'5", 335. You know, all Four of those guys inside the top 261 nationally. Winnie number 145 nationally. Daniel Calhoun's the highest rated at number 97. Now you're Daniels at 168 and Marquise Eastley at 261. And guys, these players are from all over the country. We got one guy, Calhoun's from Georgia. He goes to Walton. You got Uenny, who is from Texas. You got Eastley, who's from Illinois. You got Daniels, who's from New Jersey. Fran Brown paying off. We're getting big-time offensive linemen from all over the country, and again, they are massive guys. And then you throw in Namdi Agboko at 6'4", 335 at Zero Tech Nose Guard, and then Joseph Jonah Ajanye at 6'4", 280 at the Five Tech, and the trend is clear. It's very clear. We want to be able to bludgeon you and take your soul in the trenches. That is our goal. That is what we are trying to do. And if you took each of these commitments in isolation, you would still marvel at the sheer size of each of these guys. I mean, really, when you look at these guys and you just think about it, if you've ever been around any of these guys in person, like stood next to them, it's really hard to imagine that they and we mere mortals are of the same species. It just doesn't seem like we belong on the same planet. It's, it's just weird because they're just so much bigger than the average person. But again, I think when you look at these commitments, each of these guys in isolation, you just look at them and say, oh my God, it's another huge dude. But when looked upon collectively, when you take all these guys as a whole, you gain insight into exactly how we have been able to separate from the rest of the pack in college football to the point that we have reeled off back-to-back national titles and are the odds-on favorite to win an unprecedented third consecutive college football title this year. That's my biggest takeaway from this epic nine-day run or this epic two-week run if you want to throw in a Boco. That's what it highlights for me. It highlights why we are in the position that we are in and how we have elevated our program to the very top of the college football world. And look, there, there is no one specific reason why we have ascended to the top of the college football world it it really it's a combination of things it's not just one thing it's it's the relentlessness of our head coach it's recruiting it's institutional alignment it's location you know the fertile recruiting grounds that we're in the fan base the passionate fan base that we have the the way that we develop our players once we get them into their program all those factors and so many more are thrown into a pot you mix it up and you get what is the prevailing standard in college football and which is what we are But in terms of on-the-field play, there is one area that gives us an advantage over every single team we play, and I do not care what team we are talking about. All of those things matter. The relentlessness of your head coach, his attention to detail, athletic department support, fan base support, location, all of those things matter, but players play, and players win games. I say it often, talent alone is insufficient to win at the highest levels, to win national championships. You still have to be able to develop that talent. You still have to be able to deploy that talent effectively. Just ask Texas A&M, players alone are not enough. It's insufficient. But without the players, nothing else matters. If you have elite players, you can still be Ed Orgeron and luck your way in and win a national title. Just because you have a roster that's so far and above, better than everyone else in that one given year... You can still have a coach who doesn't really exactly know what he's doing, and he even can't mess it up because the talent's that good. The development and deployment of your talent definitely matter, but nothing matters more than talent acquisition. That is a prerequisite to winning at the highest level. That is what you absolutely have to have, no questions asked. And when it comes to players, we might not be better at every position on the field. We didn't have the receivers that Ohio State did last year, we didn't have the quarterback that Alabama had back in 2021. Hell, we didn't have the receivers that Tennessee had this year. So we're not always better at every single position on the field. But the simple reality is, in the trenches, along both the offensive line and the defensive line, we are better than everyone else in America. We are bigger, we are stronger, more athletic, more physical, and we are deeper than every single team that we match up against. Some more than others, to be sure, but the reality is, There is not one single team in America that can match us man for man in the trenches. And in a sport where I still very much believe games are won and lost in the trenches, that is exactly why even the best teams, they might steamroll through their schedule, through their regular season schedule until they face Georgia. And then once they face Georgia, they proceed to get smashed into oblivion. Why does that happen? Because we have better players in the trenches, and we have more of them in the trenches. And I've got some numbers for you guys to back this up. Since it really has been just the last two years, these back-to-back national and championship seasons, that we have seen our program elevated above all others in the country, I'm looking at the past two NFL drafts to provide insight into what it is that has made us different. And my thesis here, as I laid out for you, is that we are just better and deeper along the offensive and defensive lines along the trenches. So if you look at the past two NFL drafts, there have been nine Georgia offensive linemen and defensive linemen combined selected in those two drafts. And if you want to go check my math, I'll just go ahead and lay this out. I am also including edge players. I'm including Nolan Smith in this. I know technically he's an outside linebacker, but I'm including him along the defensive line because more often than not, we are playing even fronts and he's basically functioning like a 4-3 defensive end where he's setting the edge, playing the run, on line and scrimmage. So I am including Nolan and other edge rushers for other teams. I'm going to lay out here in a minute. I'm including them in this calculation because I believe more often than not, they function as an extension of the defensive line. So we've had nine total offensive linemen and defensive linemen selected in the NFL draft over the past two seasons and six of those nine players were selected in the first Round you heard that correctly. We have had six offensive and defensive linemen combined drafted in the first round of the past two NFL drafts. So, to illustrate to you how that has separated us from the rest of the country, let's throw out some numbers for some of the other top teams, other top 10 caliber teams over the past two seasons. So, LSU has had seven offensive and defensive linemen drafted in the past two rounds, not one of them was drafted in the first round. Alabama has had five offensive and defensive linemen drafted over the past two drafts. Two of them were in the first round. Clemson has had three drafted. Two of them were in the first round. Both were last year with um, with Murphy and Brissy. Ohio State has had seven offensive and defensive linemen drafted over the past two years. Only one of them, however, was drafted in the first round. Michigan has had six. Two of them were drafted in the first round. Tennessee has had four offensive linemen, defensive linemen drafted in the past two drafts. One of them was a first-round draft pick. Southern California has had two drafted. Zero were first-round picks. Penn State has had three drafted. Zero were first-round picks. TCU, who we destroyed in the National Championship game last year, had two drafted. Zero in the first round. Gives you an idea of why we were able to just absolutely obliterate TCU last year. And Notre Dame, Two offensive linemen, defensive linemen drafted in the last two drafts. Zero drafted in the first round. One of those is not like the others. And of course, the one that's different is the Georgia Bulldogs. That is exactly how we have been able to separate from the pack. We are just simply better and deeper along the lines of scrimmage. And in a world where line of scrimmage play still reigns supreme over everything else, that is why we have won 29 of our last 30 football games. And a lot has been made about our difficulty in landing the top wide receivers in the country, getting these five-star receivers. And that frustrates me too, guys. I'm with you on that. I would love to see us get some of these more highly ranked receivers. I want that too. But when you see all this, this consternation about our difficulty landing those guys or us losing out on running backs or even quarterbacks prior to this year, of course, you know, obviously landing the number one quarterback in the country, that will change things. But prior to this year, you know, we've, we've taken our, our swings at some of the biggest quarterbacks in the country. We haven't really always had that much success landing them. Like Arch Manning, we were in, we were in the top two. We were in the running. We were, we were a finalist. But ultimately, we lost out to Texas. A lot's made of that, you know, over the years. Ohio State, I and mean, they just seem to collect five-star wide receivers. You know, the five-star quarterbacks just seem to line up to play for Lincoln Riley. Bama gets all these great running backs year after year. And don't get me wrong, we get our fair share of those guys too. It's not like we have garbage at the, at the skill town. We are still very talented at the skill positions. But what makes us different, what separates us from the rest of the country is how we evaluate, recruit, and develop Offensive and defensive linemen, and if I'm in constructing a team, that's where I want to be the strongest. Of course, I want to have the best quarterback and I want the best receivers and the best running back, of course. But if I had to pick among all those, like what do I really want to make the strength of my team? You better damn well believe I'm picking the lines of scrimmage. You can have all the skill talent in the world, but it doesn't matter if you don't have anyone that can block for them. I know I sound like every single high school coach in the history of high school football when I say that, but it doesn't make it any less true. I do believe if you're looking at one single position, what's the most important position on the field? Like What can mitigate talent disadvantages? I think it is quarterback in the way that, that college football and really football in general has evolved. There's been more emphasis placed on the quarterback position. So, When you're just looking at one position, yeah, I do think that's the most important position. But when you're looking at a unit in its totality, I think the offensive and defensive lines are the most critical units on your football team. That is where you want to be strongest. That is what you want to be the foundation of your football team. I know football has changed over the years, and there has been this wild offensive evolution that's really fun to watch. But at the core of the game, it's still about lining up and being able to whip the man in front of you. And that is quite simply what we are able to do better than any team in America. I mean, if you think about it, guys, the list of teams that can realistically beat us if we play our A game is very, very small. I'm talking maybe, maybe one to two teams deep in a given year. Maybe one to two teams. And the reason is our dominance along the lines of scrimmage It just simply leaves a team with fewer options to beat us. I've told you guys this a thousand times. You are not going to out Georgia Georgia. And again, what I mean by that is you are not going to be able to beat us by lining up and out-physicaling us along the lines of scrimmage and running the ball down our throw and stopping our run game. You're not going to be able to beat us doing that because we will do it better than you because we have better players than you. It's that simple. We can be beaten any team can be beaten, but to beat us, you have to have elite talent at quarterback and wide receiver that can neutralize the advantage that we have along the defensive line by just dictating the game be played in space. But that's not enough. On top of that, you have to have that. You have to have elite quarterback and wide receiver talent. But on top of that, you also have to be able to at least challenge us on the line of scrimmage. You're not going to be able to win the war in the trenches because, again, we're better than you there, but you have to have enough talent along the lines of scrimmage to where you win enough of those battles to, on offense, give your elite skill talent the time it needs to do its thing, and then on defense be able to to compete enough in the trenches to get enough stops against our offense to where maybe possibly you can eke out a very narrow victory against us. That's what it takes. So think about it. How many teams actually fit that description each year? I think it's like one or two. That's why Tennessee couldn't beat us last year. That's why they couldn't stay within two touchdowns. They were lucky it was only two touchdowns when the rain came. They had the quarterback. They had the receivers. But again, that's not enough. That's a prerequisite. You have to have that to be able to beat us. But that alone is not enough. You also have to be able to be competitive in the trenches, and they simply weren't. They don't have that kind of talent along the lines of scrimmage. And we just absolutely wrecked them. We were able to stop their run game with even numbers in the box, allowed us to play a two-high safety shell all game long. We were able to help our corners over the top against their good receivers, and we stifled their, their offense. That, that is exactly what happened because we outmanned them in the trenches. They weren't good enough. They didn't have the requisite pieces. They had some of them. They didn't have all of them. Alabama in 2021 in the SEC Championship game They had what it took, right? They had the elite receivers, the elite quarterback. We know that. Bryce Young, number one overall pick in the draft. And they were competitive enough in the trenches. They have enough talent in the trenches to where they could at least compete with us and win enough of those battles to allow their elite skill talent to be able to go out and win that football game. Obviously, it didn't happen that way in the national championship game, but they were good enough in that one game setting to get that done. Ohio State had elite talent at receiver and at quarterback. They were good enough on the defensive and offensive lines to be competitive with us. They just weren't quite good enough to get it done. They were close. That's why they were able to come close to because they had most of the pieces of what it took to at least give us a run for our money, which they did. But who else was going to be able to, to do that to us last year? Who else was going to be able to push us that much? I don't think Alabama would have. No, not they they did not have the offensive and defensive lines last year. They didn't have the receivers last year to be able to do that. They had the quarterback, and that was about it. That's not enough. Bryce Young's awesome. Not enough on his own. Again, we saw what happened with Tennessee. And then poor TCU, we uh, wiped off the face of the earth. We would have steamrolled Michigan just like we did in 2021 because they would have tried to out-Georgia-Georgia, and it would not have worked again. Clemson could have competed on the defensive line not on the offensive line Though they couldn't held up against our defensive front and they didn't have the talent quarterback or receiver to get the job done that's why I was salivating over the opportunity to be able to hopefully play them in the peach Bowl. didn't work out because they lost to South Carolina a team that we beat by 41 points LSU we saw what happened there they didn't have enough of the time they didn't have enough of the players on the offensive and defensive lines quarterback was good was he elite I don't know if he was elite uh receivers were good maybe not quite elite last year so again, how long was that list? I think it was one team deep. I think Ohio State was the only team that could have really pushed us the way that they did. And going into this year, I think it's again one to two teams deep. And when we sign elite offensive line and defensive line recruiting classes like we are doing in this 2024 cycle, not only is it going to be the case again this year, it's going to continue to be the case moving forward for the foreseeable future. That is is why Georgia has separated from the pack. That is why Georgia is different. And before we hit the break, guys, I have to go here real quick. I would be entirely remiss if I did not give a massive shout out to offensive line coach Stacy Searles. This guy is getting the job done on the recruiting trail. We know what he can do developing talent. He's always had that reputation. But as somebody who runs a Georgia podcast, has been doing this for about a decade now, I have the good fortune to be able to interact with a lot of different Georgia fans from different walks of life, different circles. I certainly can't speak for every Georgia fan, but I do interact with a lot of Georgia fans on a daily basis. I I mean, I live in Athens too, so there's there's that on top of all of it. So I feel like I'm pretty well positioned to have a a good feeling on how the average Georgia fan felt about the Stacey Searles hire when Matt Luke decided to step down. There are a lot of people out there that were highly skeptical of that hire, and the one criticism above all others of Stacy Searles in that hire was his recruiting ability. There were a lot of Georgia fans that felt like he simply could not keep up the pace on the recruiting front, not the way that Sam Pittman and the way that Matt Luke were able to do, and then there sure were some people that questioned his ability as, a, as an offensive line coach, like actually developing talent. They were going back to his time here at Georgia and saying, oh man, our offensive lines weren't that great back then, and my argument always was, well, he was also working with a different type of player. That was a different caliber of player that he's going to have access to here at Georgia. And honestly, I felt like there was too much made of that. I felt like he was a good offensive line coach, a good developer while he was here. He just didn't have that type of talent that he that I knew he was going to have when he came to Georgia. But I will say I was not like a thousand percent in on in the Stacey Searles hire. I was more in a wait and see mode because it, it is true that Prior to his time here under Kirby Smart, he was never seen as like an ace recruiter. He never had that reputation. And I have always felt, since Kirby Smart's gotten here, again, as I said throughout this, in this entire segment so far, that our strength along the lines of scrimmage was what made us stand out. And if our offensive line recruiting fell off, well... Maybe we would take a slight step back as a program because that would take away one of the greatest strengths of our entire team and really degrade the foundation upon which Kirby Smart's program has been built on. So I did have some level of concern there, but I wasn't like convinced that he couldn't get the job done. There were a lot of George fans that were just convinced like he is not the answer. He can't get the job done. It's a terrible hire. That wasn't so much me. I was more wait and see. I wasn't ecstatic about it. I wasn't freaking out about it. I was kind of just like, okay, let's let's see what this guy can do. And my my thought process behind that was. This is a different Georgia program. Where we are right now is very different from where we were when he was here previously under Mark Rick. We just simply have access to a different caliber player than we had access to under Mark Rick. We can get into those living rooms and have legitimate shots with those guys from around the country in a way that we just simply could not under Mark Crick. and We recruited well under Rick, just not like we are now. Like we were not a recruiting superpower. We were a really good recruiting program, just not an absolute superpower like we are now. So I wanted to see what Stacey Searles was able to do with this type of program behind him. And what the guy has done is knock it out of the park. He's absolutely killed it. Our offensive line has been arguably the best offensive line each of the past two years. Now you can say, well, he didn't recruit those guys. Okay, fine. But again, part of being the offensive line coach, a big part of being the offensive line coach is actually being able to develop the talent at your disposal. Did a hell of a job doing that. And then after the recruiting question, lands five-star Monroe Freeling last year was able to shore up a Marius Mims and then has put together this monster offensive line class this year. So a massive shout out to Stacy Searles for answering all the questions and shutting up all the haters. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. All right, guys. So that was kind of my big picture takeaway from this epic recruiting run of the past two weeks. But now for the next few minutes, I want to dive a little bit deeper into some of the actual prospects that we land, like the individual players themselves. And I want to start with Joseph Jonah Ajande. I know I've talked a lot about the offensive lineman, but I want to focus on this guy for a few minutes because I am absolutely fascinated by this guy. It's really just an awesome story. So right now, let's give you his numbers right now. So he's 6'4", 275, 280, depending on what recruiting service you look at and what they have his measurables listed as. But somewhere in that range, 275, 280. He is the number 37 player overall nationally, 247 composite, rated as number 6 defensive lineman in the country. He's out of Oak Ridge High School in Conroe, Texas. But here's what makes this story fascinating. This guy is Nigerian born. He has only been playing football since his freshman year of high school. So he's been playing football for three seasons. He's actually only 16 years old right now, going into his senior season of high school. And here's where it gets wild, guys. So his freshman year of high school, so three years ago, he was 6'2", 180 pounds. When he first went out for football, he was playing wide receiver. Fast forward three years later, the dude has shot up two inches and 100 pounds. And even as recently as February, as in like five months ago February, this dude was only 230 pounds. He shot up 45, 50 pounds in the last five months. Why does that matter? It matters because this guy is already a fringe five-star when he was playing the position at roughly 230 pounds last year. Imagine what he is going to be able to do at 275, 280 pounds with the type of athleticism that this guy has. and He has the frame guys to be able to carry 275, 280 and not lose a bit of his athleticism and what makes him special in terms of his explosiveness as an athlete. And this is also a guy that we did not even offer until this spring. We got into his recruitment way late. And we didn't get involved in his recruitment until the spring because, again, as recently as February, the guy was 230 pounds. He was basically outside linebacker size. That's why Trey Scott hadn't offered him. I mean, he, Trey Scott was talking to him on the phone in February, but at the time he's like, hey man, like I know you're like 230, 235 right now. We just want to see how you grow to see if you want to throw that defensive line offer out at you. And he goes and visits him during the evaluation period of the spring, sees, oh wow, this guy's put on the weight that we wanted to put on. Here's your offer. And then a couple of visits and a couple of months later, boom, he's now in our class. And I told you guys at the beginning of the show, I think this guy's a five-star talent. I think by the end of the cycle, he will be classified as a five-star I think he's going to have a monster year this year with the size that he's put on with his athleticism at that position. He's also an Under Armour All-American, so he's going to have that full week of Under Armour practices where all those different recruiting writers are going to be assembled. They're going to be watching him at practice. going to be watching him during the game. They're going to see up close and personal what this guy has to offer. It's more than just seeing his tape. I think his tape is good enough to be five-star stats. But when they see him in person at 280 doing things that he's going to be able to do, I think that he is going to blow their minds and he's going to shoot up the rankings even more. I think he could be a top... 30 player by the time it's all said and done if not even higher than that but when you watch this guy on tape and that's all I had to go off of right now I've not seen this guy in person he plays in Texas so all I've got is the tape but when you watch him on tape at 230 pounds last year you see a guy that is just oozing with raw ability he is super long very very athletic really explosive with that first step quickness and probably the one thing that I love most about him is his motor he is absolutely relentless out there in the football field. He never stops. He never stops rushing the passer. If the ball goes away from the opposite side of the field, he is going to turn and chase that ball. You guys that played football back in high school, right? You remember the, the old pursuit drill? Well, he would win the pursuit drill every single time because all the dude does is hustle. He does not care where the ball is. He is going to find that ball, and he is going to arrive there with bad intentions. Right now, he's not super advanced from a technical standpoint, which... Kind of makes sense, right? You wouldn't expect him to be because, again, this is a guy that has only been playing football for three years and has only been playing that position for a couple of seasons. So it will take some time to refine that skill set, but that's something that you can be taught. Like, those are the things that you expect to have to coach guys up with once they get to, to college. You can't teach the athleticism. You can't teach the size, the explosiveness that this guy has. And when you have that type of size and athleticism combination – That gives you a lot of position versatility. Ostensibly, we are recruiting him as like a five-tech guy. He's going to play like the four-eye, four, and five-tech defensive end for us, which if you're not familiar with what that means, four-eye means inside shoulder of the the offensive tackle, four means head up the offensive tackle, five means outside shoulder of the offensive tackle. Basically, he's being recruited to be Trayvon Walker. He's going to play that spot for us, but situationally, he's also a guy that you can slide down and have him play on the interiors like a three-tech guy, which is what Jalen Carter played for us last year. It depends on what his playing weight's ultimately going to be. He says he wants to stay around 280, 285, and if that's where he stays in college, then he can't be an every-down, three-tech guy. He just won't have the size to be able to do that consistently, down in and down out. But situationally, when it's obvious passing downs, we want to bring our dime package in, absolutely you can put him down as a three-tech guy and just have him rush the passer, which again is what we did with Trayvon Walker. But bottom line, he is a bananas athlete with insane length, and a crazy high motor. He is a perfect fit for our defense, and on top of that, he's a perfect culture fit for us with the way that he is going to go out there and play like his hair is on fire, the way that he's going to hustle, the way that he's going to give his all every single time he's out there on the field, and even with his commitment interviews, he was talking about one of the main reasons he chose Georgia is he likes the way that they practice, the intensity that they practice with, the intensity that is demanded from the coaching staff. He Wants that he likes that he eats that stuff up. When you have a player that is looking for that type of coaching and that type of environment that, to go along with his physical skills, you have a dude that is going to be a big time player for us. And I have very little doubt in my mind that Joseph Jonah Jagneau is going to be a big time player on our defense. Another guy that I want to talk about a little bit here because I think he's getting kind of lost in the shuffle here because he was the one, I guess he was the one that kind of kicked off this run if you want to if you want to include him in that in this two week run and that's Namdi Akboko who is going to play the nose guard position for us and he, i think he's kind of gotten lost in the shuffle here because he's the lowest rated of this group of guys that's committed. He's the only one over the past two weeks that is rated as a three star prospect and i know how this works guys When fans see three-star next to a name, they say, huh, okay, cool, whatever. And they kind of move about their day. They don't really spend that much time on it. It doesn't get them all excited because someone's told them this guy's not that good. He's only a three-star. In most people's minds, three-star means, eh, you're not that good. But you really have to peel back the layers and consider the context with this guy. This is a guy that has only played football for one season. So, Joseph Jonah Ajanye three seasons. Agboko, only one season. Also like Ajanye, Agboko is Nigerian. He plays high school football in North Carolina, but he is Nigerian and is still very new to the sport of football. So like Ajanye, his best football is absolutely ahead of him, and he has a ridiculous upside. So I know when you see three-star, you're like, oh, okay, sure, you kind of shrug a little bit, but let's not forget who was also a three-star from North Carolina once upon a time. Yeah, that's right. Jordan Davis. I bet a lot of the people are kind of shrugging when they see Boko commit and the fact that he's only a three-star were also the same people that shrugged away Jordan Davis when he committed back in the day. Now, I'm not going to sit here and tell you the guy is going to beat Jordan Davis because that dude uh, doesn't come along every day. But if you watch his tape, you see a guy that is absolutely very, very raw. Very raw. But you see a guy that has the power-athleticism combination that gives him a very high ceiling. And look, I don't know if he'll ever reach that ceiling. I don't know because this guy, again, has only been playing for one year. He's got a lot of room to improve. And maybe I'm reading too much into this. Maybe I am. But one thing that gives me a good amount of confidence that he is going to be the kind of guy that will work and develop and get closer to his ceiling in college is the fact that he has a 3.9 GPA. Now, some of you might be wondering, like, dude, what's the connection with that? Like, why does that matter when it comes to football? It matters because... It's evidence that this guy works, that he cares, that he's conscientious, that he pays attention to detail, that he cares about getting better and learning things. Again, maybe I'm reading too much into that, but I haven't met too many people with 3.9 GPAs in my life that are lazy. Sure, there's that random person here or there that's just an an absolute genius and doesn't have to work for anything. Those people exist. But more often than not, people with 3.9, 4.0 level GPAs, those people know how to work. They know how to grind. They have discipline. They have work ethic. They have the kind of things that Boko is going to need if he's going to get closer to his ceiling and continue to develop once he gets to college. And at the end of the day, guys, have we not learned to put our trust in our coaches' evaluations? If George is offering a three-star, a scholarship, an actual committable offer then there's something wrong with your ranking. Whatever recruiting service you are, if that guy's only a three-star, you might want to reevaluate that because there's something wrong with your ranking because our coaches are evaluating at a level that no other staff in the country is. So at this point, they have earned the benefit of the doubt with me. I trust them almost implicitly when it comes to these kind of guys because they just hit on these time after time after time. So a Adjane and a Boko, two guys I'm really excited about on the defensive side of the ball, but here's the crazy thing, guys. I told you at the beginning of the show that we're still not done yet with July we're not done and I'll just leave you with this before we get to our biggest what-ifs in Georgia football history volume three as of right now and you guys know things can always change in a flash when it comes to recruiting like what I'm saying right now could not be true 10 seconds from now but as of right now based off what I've been told I am fully expecting At least two more five star defensive commitments before the month is up, with the potential for that number to go up to three. One of them might push it into early August, but it could also go late July as well. So, as incredible as this two week run has been, it's about to get even better. And we really are gonna make a serious run at the number one recruiting class in the history of recruiting classes. I don't know if we're gonna quite get there. I've been trying to run the math myself based on guys that I've been given a little bit of a heads up on. And we're going to get really close. I just don't know if we're going to quite, because we had to hit 333. I don't know if we're going to quite hit that number. It really ultimately is going to come down to how many guys do we take. Do we take 32? Do we take 33? If we get to 32, 33, and it's the right guys, the guys that right now I project us to land, we've got a legitimate shot. And, man, that's that's crazy. It's crazy, man. I knew this class was going to be an epic recruiting class, come off back-to-back national titles, but I didn't know it would be this good. Mother's Day is around the corner. All right, guys, let's wrap things up here today with another edition of the greatest what-ifs in Georgia football history. This has been a really popular segment that we've done a couple of times. So I want to run through a couple more of them here that we haven't gotten to. So some of these, now this is volume three. So we're kind of deeper into the list. These These are some deep cuts. And I'm going to try to go a little faster with these today because this is probably the last time we're going to be able to do this before the season starts. We've got a lot we want to cover, a lot of things that we want to talk about, a lot of content to, to get out there for you guys. So I'm going to try to get a little faster with these, but I got a bunch left. So uh, let's just start with one of my first true heartbreaks as a Georgia fan. Let's go back to 2002. So maybe all of my life as a Georgia fan prior to 2002 was just one big heartbreak. You know, you're talking about the, the latter Ray golf years, the Don years. There were some good points. There were some high points in the years, but you're also losing to Tech, you're losing to Florida, and it just, it, it wasn't great, right? But that's kind of all that I knew. That's kind of what Georgia fandom was to me. But 2002 was different, right? Because we're we're one of the best teams in the country. We're a legitimate national championship contender. And here we are playing Florida as the number five team in the country on my birthday weekend, as it is each and every year. Because you can imagine, guys, growing up wasn't so great. Most birthdays kind of suck because, We were losing to Florida, and that kind of ruined everything, but 2002 is going to be different, right? Florida was good, but they weren't as good as we were, right? We were number five. They were like 21, 22, something around there, so I was confident going in that game, and I won that game so badly because I could feel it. We had a shot at the national championship. We were undefeated going into Jacksonville, but it was a hard-fought game. 20-13, 20-13, to 13, late in the game. I still remember that score, man. 20-13, to 13, late in the game. I forget exactly how much time was on the clock, but I know it was right around two minutes, maybe a little bit more than two minutes left. We're trying to drive. We're trying to tie the football game. David Green rolls slightly to his left, throws the football. The time when he release the ball, I don't know who's out there because it's on, on, it's on TV, so you can't really see where the receivers are, but the, the camera pans to where Terrence Edwards is dude is wide open across the middle of the field you guys know you guys know I don't have to tell you you know nobody around him he catches the ball he runs in the end zone we tie the game now do we win the game I don't know goes probably goes to overtime but Edwards one of the best receivers in Georgia football history man the only receiver in the history of our team of our program to ever go for over a thousand yards in a single season one of the best but in that moment he dropped the ball, man. He dropped the ball. Now that was only first down, if I remember correctly. So we had a couple other opportunities there. So it wasn't all on him. But the fact remains, if he catches that ball, I'm fairly certain he scores. Because I've watched that play a million times. I think he scores. There's no one around, no within five yards of him. He would have caught the ball in about the four to thirty yard line and then just coasted into the end zone, tie the game. Now, the reason this one was not higher on my list is because there were a lot of other variables at play there. Even if he does catch that ball and he does score, there's still over two minutes left on the clock. Maybe Florida goes down there and they score. Maybe the game goes overtime and we lose in overtime. So it's not as cut and dry saying that is the one play that lost us the game. There were other opportunities. Again, that was only a first down play, if I remember correctly. So that's why it wasn't higher on my list, but still a moment that I will never forget. When he dropped that ball, my heart sank to the bottom of the ocean. And ultimately, we lose the game, and that ends up being the only game that we lost the entire season. If we'd won that game, we go undefeated. Who knows if we would have gotten into the BCS national title game. You know, the BCS era, different era, different story. Maybe we would have gotten left out. I don't know. But I I, I think we would have gotten in. And if we would have gotten in, who knows if we would have won that game. But we certainly would have had a shot. So I can't sit here and say with 100% certainty that cost us a national championship. But I think you can say that it did cost us a shot at one. And what if? What if he catches that ball? What if he catches the ball? What if we go on to win the BCS national title? Mark gets his national championship. Does that give him some more credibility? Does that give him some more wiggling room late in his tenure? Does that championship allow him to capitalize more on the recruiting trail to where he builds out even better rosters and better teams? Maybe he can win another national championship after 2002? Maybe. I don't know. And if he does parlay that national title into another national championship somewhere along the way because of enhanced recruiting, does that mean he still keeps his job after 2015? Would we have ever gotten to the point where 2015 was the type of season that it was? Would we ever gotten to the point where he was on the hot seat at that point in 2015? Maybe, maybe not but it's certainly a question where we can ask what if oh and here's another good one man this one mm, it's tough to get over this one so let's go all the way back to the 2014 recruiting cycle a lot of you probably know where I'm going here right in 2014 I love Mike Bobo you guys know I'm a believer in Mike Bobo I think he did a fantastic job for us as offense coordinator I think he's gonna do a great job with us this year I should talk about that in the next week or two in one of our episodes but this is one that Mike got wrong back in 2014 we prioritized Bryce Ramsey at quarterback over Deshaun Watson, who was from just down the road, Gainesville High School. I mean Bryce's Bryce Ramsey was a was a Georgia prospect. He was down in Camden County though in South Georgia. Not that that should matter, but what should matter is that Deshaun Watson was clearly the better prospect. Now there has been some revisionist history to a degree with this. Deshaun Watson was not a five star prospect. I don't know if people realize that. I think there's this there's this idea that that Watson was like the this top ten caliber quarterback that we just completely shunned and just didn't want anything to do with like he was a fairly highly rated guy he was like a top 50 guy but he wasn't like a consensus number one overall quarterback and neither was Ramsey but Ramsey was rated at a comparable level to where Deshaun Watson was but I don't care about that the evaluation was off clearly we know that Deshaun Watson was the better player. I mean, Bryce Ramsey never, did Bryce ever start a game for us? I don't think Bryce ever actually started a game for us. And then we know what Deshaun Watson went on to do at Clemson where he elevated that program to a level that they had never seen before in the history of their program. So what if we sign Deshaun Watson? Does Mark Rick win a championship with Deshaun Watson? Do we do what Clemson did with Deshaun Watson? It's like, was Clemson at really that much of a higher level than we were before they signed Deshaun Watson? I mean, yeah, they beat us in 2013. We beat them at home in 2014. That was a game where Nick Chubb, his freshman years, he runs out of his shoe, runs for a touchdown. So Georgia and Clemson were at very comparable levels at that point in time. But once Clemson signed Deshaun Watson in 2014, the rest is history. It changes the face of their program. If we would have signed Watson, who's to say that we couldn't have won national titles with him? Because again, Georgia and Clemson were at very similar levels at that point. Deshaun Watson just put Clemson over the top. Would he have put us over the top? Like, what if? What if we had signed Sean Watson? What if we had not waited to get it on, on Deshaun Watson? What if we hadn't prioritized Bryce Ramsey? If we get Sean Watson, I don't think Mark gets fired. I think we would probably win a national championship. I think he was that good. I don't think he gets fired in 2015. If he doesn't get fired in 2015, does Kirby ever come? Do we ever win the the back-to-back titles in 21 and 22? Like, it just changes. It would rewrite history. That's what would happen. Like, if we would have signed Deshaun Watson, it would have absolutely rewritten history. I think we would have won national titles, so it would all have been great regardless, but what else would have changed? I mean, Kirby Smart would probably be coaching at South Carolina right now. Where would South Carolina be as a program? Hell, where would Clemson be? Would Clemson have ever been able to, to sign Trevor Lawrence if they didn't have Deshaun Watson prior to that to show him what they could do? with a top-level quarterback, and if Deshaun Watson had come to Georgia, and we, we win a national title with him, Trevor Lawrence would have had no reason to commit to Clemson, and it came down to us and Clemson as his final two. He chooses Clemson, so would it have been Deshaun Watson, Trevor Lawrence, in Georgia uniforms? What if, man? Here's another what if. Now, this is a huge deep cut. This is a big-time deep cut. So you guys remember Dog Night, probably, right? Like Dog Night was this big recruiting weekend we used to have. It's, it's, a, it's a relic. We don't do that anymore. No one really does that anymore. We just have like one night where you basically invite all these recruits from various classes, from the a junior class, the senior class, even sophomore class. You invite all these guys up to your campus, and you basically work them out. You put them through drills. They do a little seven-on-seven. Seven. You have families up there. There's a lot of just cutting up, messing around. They have cookouts and that kind of thing. We used to do that, and it was called Dog Night. Well, the dog night where Trevor Lawrence came up there, I think it was the 20, it was going to the 2015. So I guess, I guess it's going to the 2015 season. So I guess that was the 2015 dog night. I remember because I was there. Um, I remember that was the night where Bailey Hockman committed to Georgia. Wow. Blast from the past, man. Uh, Jay Fromm was there. He was there with his team and I was watching both those guys and I kept watching. I was like, man, this Fromm guy, uh, He's better than this Hockman kid, but they they were all, the entire coaching staff, Schottenheimer was all over Hockman. That was his guy. That's who he wanted. So Schottenheimer was all over him. Rick was all over him. And while they were busy just giving all this love to, to Bailey Hockman, and it's not Bailey Hockman's fault, while they were giving all that love to him, there's one guy that they just completely ignored that night. And that guy's name was Trevor Lawrence. Now, he wasn't the Trevor Lawrence that we know now. He was only a freshman. But you could still see the talent that he had as a freshman. And we just completely ignored him that night. Not not a coach that I know of actually spoke to the kid. And it absolutely rubbed him and his family the wrong way, as it should have. And so even though that staff was gone and Kirby Smart's in with a whole new group, a whole new regime at Georgia, they never forgot that night. Trevor never forgot it. The family never forgot it. And I don't want, I don't want to sit here and say for beyond a shadow of a doubt like that was the deciding factor between Georgia and Clemson, but it certainly did not help our chances. It put us behind the eight ball. And Kirby made up a lot of ground, man. Like it was a miracle that we were able to even get to the, as close as we did. He made up a lot of ground, but it was never quite enough to to overcome the damage that had been done. And obviously, he ends up going to Clemson and the rest is history. What if though, man? What if we just had paid the kid just the the slightest bit of attention? What if? What about this one? What if Devonte Smith? And Derrick Henry had stayed committed to Georgia. Let's not forget that, guys. Let's go back a couple years, right? Devontae Smith, once upon a time, Georgia commit. Yeah, I'm talking about Heisman Trophy winner Devontae Smith. Was a Georgia commitment. Then decommits, goes to Alabama. Same thing with Derrick Henry. Georgia commit, decommits, goes to Alabama. Both those guys going to win national championships. Now, would they have put us over the top and won national championships? I think so. I think definitely Devontae Smith. I I, I think that we probably beat Alabama in 2018 that national championship game if it wasn't for Devonte smith if he flipped teams right like, i think we probably win that game what if man like I, I definitely think about some of those guys that we miss like we, we recruit so well but man there's some big high profile misses that we've had over the years and it just hurts when you have both those guys on your commit list at one point and then boom they go to alabama and they win national championships there that hurts man that hurts what if what if those guys would have come to georgia what if they would have stuck to their commitments uh how about this one a little bit more recent what if jt daniels Lat had not flared up. Like, what if that lat injury early in 2021 had never flared up? Like if, if JT finishes that entire year with no injuries, do we win national championship? Do we? Our defense still would have been dominant. The defense wouldn't have changed. But would JT have less national title? I I I think a lot of people probably still say yes based on how he finished the, the 2020 season. But I don't know, man. I don't know. Like Stetson's mobility really helped us in a lot of situations, a lot of games that season. Stetson was a gamer. This one wasn't as high on my list because, again, like I can't sit here and say with 100% certainty that we would not have won the national title if JT would have been our quarterback that whole year. He was the quarterback for a reason coming into the year, right? And we saw what he was able to do, how he elevated the offense at the end of 2020. So there's some reason to believe that, yeah, maybe we could have still won the national title with him. But I don't know. I mean, this is a guy that's playing at Rice at this point. But let's say, even if we do win the national championship with JT, he probably goes pro after that, right? He probably had a good enough year and he'd been high-profile enough after the national title where he wants to try his hand at the NFL draft and see what happens, right? Well, Stetson would have never started in, 2020, in 2021. Does Stetson transfer out? Does he leave Georgia and say, man, like, because we know Stetson was pissed. Like, he, had a, he, he still kind of has that chip on his shoulder of how the coaches didn't want to give him a chance. They were trying everything possible to not give him an opportunity. Like, he probably would have transferred. I think it was a really good chance. So what happens in 2022, is Carson Beck, right? Was Carson ready last year to lead us to the national championship? Maybe, I don't know. Like, we don't know. Like, this is one that doesn't have a firm answer. That's why it's a little lower on my list. It's just kind of a fun one to think about. Like, what if? Like, what if JT had never gotten hurt. What if that lat had never flared up? Stetson would have never played in 2021, which means he probably would have transferred out. He wouldn't have been on the team in 2022. Maybe we win the title in 2021, but do we win it again in 2022? I don't know. Our defense was good last year, but Stetson was a far bigger factor in our success last year than he was in 2021. So I don't know if we win a national title last year if Stetson's not on the team. So maybe it all kind of worked out for the best there, but just that's just a, a fun what if. And I'll leave you guys with this one. This was not exactly Georgia specific but I think it would definitely have affected our program what if Nick Saban had been true to his word back in in 2006 2007 and not actually taken the Alabama job what if he'd actually would have stayed with the Miami Dolphins think about how that would have rewritten college football history I mean just think about that guys I mean how many national times would we we have won think about like how many times was Bama the impediment right directly in our way of winning national championship definitely the 2017 national championship, I guess the 2018 national t- national title game, but 2017 national championship. If Saban doesn't go to Alabama, we win that game. 2012, we probably win the SEC championship and go on and we, be- we beat Notre Dame, win national championship there. Maybe, Kurt- maybe Mark Rittner gets fired there, right? Because we win the 20- the 2012 national championship, as we talked about with one of these previous what if volumes, We're talking about like what if Chris Connolly uh, hadn't caught that ball? What if that ball wasn't tipped? What if it's a touchdown? Do we win it in 2018? But here's the true mind warp when it comes to this question: If what if Saban had never taken the Alabama job? But if if Saban had never taken the Alabama job, would Kirby Smart have ever ended up at Georgia? Think about that. Like, okay, so he was with Saban at, in Miami, right? So he would have never gone to Alabama. He would never have been this hot shot defense coordinator in the college ranks maybe Kirby would have continued on the NFL path and become an NFL defense coordinator and an NFL head coach. And I'll go back to the Rick thing, as I, as I keep going back to with a lot of these. If Saban never comes to Alabama, I think Rick has a legitimate shot to get at least one national championship there. And if he gets that, then there, we would never would have looked at Kirby, right? And if Kirby is in the NFL, he's probably, even if it's, it's alma mater, is he going to leave an NFL head coaching job to come back to college? I don't know. I mean, I don't think Kirby's ever going to leave Georgia to go to the NFL, but if he had an NFL job, a head coaching job, is he going to leave that job to come back to college? I don't know. I mean, Saban did it. Maybe Kirby would have it when when, when mama comes calling, when when your alma mater comes calling, maybe, but there's no guarantee there. I, I think that's a massive one, not just for George, but really for the past 20 years, two decades or so of college football history. What? if Nick Saban had not taken the Alabama job and he actually had stayed with Miami in the NFL. But all right, guys, that is all I've got for you here today. We'll be back on the preview train later this week. I appreciate you guys just humoring me here with this brief recruiting interlude. I had to, guys, but we had to talk about it. There's too much going on, too many commitments, too many big developments for us not to cover it. But uh, I appreciate it, guys. Thank you for being here. I'm Tyler, and as always, go dogs.